We're in John 15 this month looking at abiding practices. Some call them spiritual disciplines. And abiding practices is apropos because of this verse that Molly read for us. Verse 4 is a good summary statement of all 17 verses that we're looking at these six weeks in this passage. Verse 4 again, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If you're going to take one verse out of the first 17 in John 15 and say this, this says it, it would be verse 4. Now we're also going to look at verses 9 through 12 today, so hold your Bible open. But this abiding that Jesus talks about is for, it's purposed, it's for bearing fruit. So it's not a passive thing, abiding, just sort of, you know, hanging out with Jesus. It's, it's purposed for bearing fruit. And bearing fruit is the yield of obedience from the heart. And obedience from the heart is a line we got from Romans chapter 6. We're here in John 15 to apply what we learned in Romans 6 through 8 through the cultivation of what we're calling abiding practices that help us to learn how to obey out of love, not out of any other motivation, but love. That's what obedience from the heart from Romans 6 is about. And confession is the abiding practice before us today. Confession, again, like fasting last week, it's not in the text, but the call to abide depends on practices, and so I'm commending to you some practices. So if you go looking in the text for where is he getting confession, I'm not getting confession from the text of John 15. I'm saying this for the sake of probably three people in here who I don't want emails from, Uh, but I am saying this as this is what it means to abide, all right? So uh, I want to save them the time uh, to to write me and say, I don't think you know what expository preaching is. I've taken some classes, and I don't hold myself up as an example, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Like fasting last week, um, an abiding practice, confession this week, whereas fasting that we talked about last week, you try to keep fasting from others. I mean, you don't have to go nonsensical about it, and, but, but you don't broadcast that you're, you're doing it. Jesus talked about that. But confession is something you go seeking others for. It does require someone else to practice this, but not just anyone you confess to. This is not something that uh, you just open up in front of everyone. In fact, you open up to someone you know loves you and is for you. That's who you confess your sins to. And simply put, I'm going to give you just a kind of a funnel approach. We'll, we'll start wide and we'll move down to some specifics. And starting wide, what confession is, simply put, it's practicing personal honesty before God. And that personal honesty you practice before God extends to yourself and to others. So confession is practicing personal honesty before God that extends to myself and to others. No hiding from God. I can't hide from him anyway, but also no making excuses for myself. Now that's a way of hiding from myself. Honesty before God and with myself, and this extends to others as well, to trusted others. I underscore that. I should be able to trust someone I know loves me. If I know that that person loves me, 
then uh, I, I can risk telling them something unlovely about me and be loved still. Augustine, or Augustine as some call him, we'll go with uh, Augustine, his Confessions, uh, famous work, Augustine, a fourth century church father, Confessions, an appropriate book to invoke with this subject. You can talk about confession, you've got to quote Augustine's Confessions. But as it happens, in Confessions, Augustine wrote about who his true brothers were, and this is timeless. He said, they are those, quote, who rejoice for me in their hearts when they find good in me and grieve for me when they find sin. They are my true brothers because whether they see good in me or evil, they love me still. To such as these, I shall reveal what I am, close quote. By that, he meant with such as these, people who love me still, regardless of what they see in and from me, I will practice confession. Now, it may be that, that my personal evil goes public in some way. It, it, it may even go viral. Everyone sees or, or knows about my quick fuse because um, I lost it at some venue. Or they uh, hear or, or see my belittling tongue or, or my haughty spirit or, or my adulterous heart and so on, whatever it is for us. It may be that many see our personal evil, and we have to own that if they do. But to some, a few trusted others who love us, we venture to actually tell them what we are, even if they've never seen it themselves. This is confession. And I'm sure it sounds scary as we get into this. In fact, I know it does. I haven't told you yet why we should make this an abiding practice of ours. But it's scary to confess our sin, even to someone we know loves us. But if with those I believe I can trust, uh, because I know they love me, I, I've worked on the relationship enough to know they do, uh, I will venture the honesty to tell them what they may never see in me, that I've kept hidden from everybody. But I tell them, uh, and, and they wouldn't otherwise know unless I confess it to them. But I know it's there and I know that I don't need to carry it. I know I need to tell someone, not so they'll help me hide it further, but help me leave it and get my loves in order. That's the point of confession. If the, if the nature of sin is disordered love, love and disarray, love overspilling its, its banks and, and instead of a, a hydroelectric uh, kind of power to it, it's just all over the place. I love everything uh, that I want to love equally and I'm, and I'm just following my whims. And so if, if disordered love is the essence of sin, then confession is, is a reordering practice. Probably our greatest temptation when you think this out our, probably our greatest temptation is to hide when we give in to temptation. And we have many ways of hiding. We hide through self-deception. All the ways we reassure ourselves, we're really not so bad. Yeah, I did that. I said that. I, I, I've, I've been indulging in that. But, but what is that compared to the greater problems in the world around me? My sin is nothing. We also hide by way of image management. We don't want to risk being cast in a dim light. We don't want to lose face. 
or we just fear our honesty will be used against us in some way, which is not a fear without precedent. Some of the deepest pain that people have experienced in Christian fellowship has resulted from betrayal, from practicing honesty with someone, coming clean about something I need to leave, I I need to fight a better fight with than I'm fighting on my own, something I could have kept hidden but I didn't, but then that person we told turns on us, betrays our confidence, tells others who turn on us. Confessing does involve a measure of risk, even as it happens with those we know love us. But the opposite practice, hiding, Since we're called to bear fruit in this passage, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, or some translations, fruit that lasts. Since this is our calling, hiding, it's kind of like plastic fruit. You've seen an array of plastic fruit. It looks nice from afar. You walk up to it and it's molded plastic. The colors are painted on. I'm going to give us two reasons why we should practice confessing our sin to a trusted person in Christ we know loves us. Why we should do this as an abiding practice. One reason has to do with joy and the other reason has to do with love. Our passage speaks to joy and love both. Now, we just read verse 4, but we're going to move into now verses 9 through 12. So as you're looking at verses 9 through 12, you're going to see joy and love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Confession is a way we do this. So two reasons why we should practice confessing our sin to a trusted person in Christ we know loves us. Two reasons why this should be an abiding practice. First has to do with joy and the second has to do with love and that's the sermon. First, joy. Look back at verse 11 that we just read. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And that's a very important word in a joy context, the word full. Note it there at the end of verse 11. Why is joy and full together often in Scripture? Because joyfulness is inseparable from fullness, meaning specifically the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. The cause for our joy is the person of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. Remember what Jesus heard his father say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father's absolute joy in the son. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full Joyfulness is inseparable from the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus, which is why only Christians experience joy. 
I'm not trying to say something elitist. Only people in relationship with the one in whom the fullness of God bodily dwelled can know the experience that he knows eternally, joy. Only Christians can know actual, transcendent, lasting joy. Happiness is public domain. God's made happiness available to everybody. It's part of his common grace on the world. Most anyone can access happiness, and sin can make you happy. It can. You lie to people if you say your sin will make you miserable. You're, you're not ne- maybe not necessarily lying, but you're, you're not being completely truthful with them. Because what we're talking about when we say that, we're trying to warn them, oh, this will make you miserable. Well, eventually, yeah, it will, it will entangle you. It will take more from you than it ever gives you. But happiness, sin can make you happy. You know church signs, churches that put signs out and they put little messages on their signs. One of them said, all you who are tired of sin, come on in. And somebody had graffitied over that in red letters, all you who ain't, call. And they had a phone number for you to call. It can make us incredibly happy to get our way. And in sin, that's what we go for, getting our way. Not for nothing does the Bible refer to the pleasures of sin. Sin can make you happy. To a point, for a time, it has a cost, but our sin, whether we're talking about unrighteous expression or self-righteous expression of sin, it does nothing for joy except dissolve it. It's like acidic on, on joy. It's, and it's, uh, it's detracting, it's distracting, it's a blockage to joy. What we do when we try to deny that we have sin or we try to cover up our sin so we can keep it going is we keep the joy of our salvation pent up. We frustrate that experience that Christians are supposed to have of prizing Jesus Christ as supreme. And usually we cover up our sin because, well, I mean, candidly, because we love our sin and we don't want to leave it. That's why we cover it up so that it doesn't go away and then we're bereft of it and we're wondering well what will I do now but we also cover up our sin because we're afraid of consequences and that fear of consequences if this is found out if this is known I mean that's that's a that's a huge weight to bear it can even be a very crushing weight and some people carry that weight for decades and you, you, can, uh, you can, almost at times, it can have a, almost a physical effect of just being very careworn. Sometimes that, that careworness actually results from, from somebody carrying this weight of, of fear. If this was known, there'll be these consequences, and I just can't take that. Confession as an abiding practice is shedding that weight before it gains and accumulates. It's, it's, it's refusing to live under it, to give it an opportunity to accumulate. It's, it's chasing my sin out of hiding into the sight line of a trusted person who will not fill up with contempt for me when I tell him or her, but compassion because, recalling Augustine again, whether he or she sees good or evil in me, 
they love me still. We have to have that. Whether they see it in me and say, hey, I think maybe you have a problem with this, and I say, indeed, I do, you've seen it, I'm outed. Or before that scenario, I go to them and say, you know, you've never seen this, you don't know this about me, but here it is, I show them, I tell on myself. That trusted person proves their trustworthiness to me by ministering to me the joy of my salvation. They don't heap condemnation on me. They show me in their grace and their, in their love what I really want more than the pleasures of sin for a season is I want the joy of my salvation. And they help me rekindle a taste for that. No matter how pleasurable that sin is, if the Holy Spirit of God indwelling me, if he's indwelling me, what I really want is the joy of my salvation in experience. When we were in Romans chapter 6 through 8, we were looking at a lot of doctrine. And one of the doctrines that we considered is the doctrine of no condemnation. Remember that? Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How do I practice the doctrine of no condemnation? Is that just something I set on my shelf, as it were, and admire it? Or I come on a Sunday morning and a preacher talks about it and I, and I go away saying, that's really cool that God's like that. Or is that a doctrine that I can practice, the doctrine of no condemnation? And if it's a doctrine I can practice, how do I practice? Let me suggest to you that the way you get the joy in that out, because there's joy in that understanding, there's no condemnation. You're telling me that God holds nothing over me, nothing ever again. All of it is cleaned and cleared away, and there's, there's nothing but, but a love relationship between he and I. You're, if you're telling me that's true, and the Scripture says that's true, that's what we're telling you, how do I get the joy in that out? We saw back in Romans 6 a couple months ago that it's never through sinning all the more. I hate what my sin required of God the Son. I hate the guilt and shame it hangs on me and plunges me into. How I practice the doctrine of no condemnation is through confession. Confession is never about wallowing in guilt and shame, but seeing it again and again and again as crucified with Christ. When someone confesses a sin to me, I was told years ago by the, by the pastor I worked with in Franklin, Tennessee, I'd gone to him because uh, I was, somebody had come and confessed some sin and, and I was a little confused by what am I supposed to do with this? I was new on the job as a pastor, you know, I was a total greenhorn. And uh, he said, well, how did you handle it? And I said, well, I, I think I just sort of just kind of looked at him and, and I didn't really know what to say, you know, and, and uh, there was a lot of self-righteousness in me at, at that time, more so than there is now. Thankfully, it's, it, it has reduced, they're still there. But I, um, I, I went to my, my uh, lead pastor and I said, I, I, I'm not sure what to do with that. And he goes, well, the first thing you need to do with that is praise God. He said, well, can you walk this out with me a little bit? I'm slow. You know, i educated in Alabama. I'm not quite sure what you're, you're, uh, you're telling me. 
And he goes, yeah, if somebody has taken the trouble to come to you and confess their sin, you praise God because the Holy Spirit of God is working in that person. And so you praise God. And in subsequent years, what I've learned to do is is we thank God for bringing that person to that point where they don't want to carry this anymore and they're, they're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit and it's for their good to get rid of this, get it out, start dealing with it. But when someone confesses to me, I, I usually quote to them Romans 8.1. You know Jesus covers that. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But I've also learned to pair with that Romans 13, verse 14. We're coming to this in a few months. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Make no provision for the flesh. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But those in Christ Jesus make no provision for the flesh. That is to to gratify our sinful desires. If we do that... We need to confess it so we don't keep going back there. We keep seeking something from our unrighteousness or self-righteousness that we won't seek from our Savior. Remember verse 3 here in John 15? You got John 15 open still? Remember verse 3? Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. If this is true of us, and it is, then confession as an abiding practice is for keeping this before us. A lot of you would say you have to fight for joy. You've got miseries in your life, struggles, frustrations, and you have to fight for joy. Confession is actually part of the fight for joy. A lot of us do have to fight for joy. And we do because our sin wants to have the, the last word over us and the loudest word. But Jesus himself, the one in whom is the fullness of God, who loves us as much as God the Father loves him. Did you catch that in verse 9? Isn't that, it's either the most ridiculous thing to say, but if it's true, it's it's one of the most awesome things to say. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Is that, am I reading that right? As the Father has loved the Son, so the Son has loved us? Wow! We, ought to, we could come in here and every week just camp in verse 9 and have plenty to talk about, plenty to sing about, plenty to pray in response to. This is marvelous truth. If that's true, then sin never has the last or the loudest word over us. Our Savior has the last word over us. And in fact, He has the loudest word over us, but it's not spoken as a shout, it's spoken as a song. I love one of the prophets, I think it's Zephaniah, who says that he rejoices over you with singing. What God sings. Already you have become clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, verse 3 here in John 15. Why then confession if I'm already clean? It's a way of preaching the gospel to myself and to the one that I'm confessing to. I need to come clean because I need to square again with the gospel that I'm no longer owned by sin. I have to square with this again and again in practice because I will still experience temptation of all kinds. And when I do, when I give in, then I want to justify my giving in. And when I justify my giving in, then I will hide my giving in. But giving in, justifying it, hiding it, all of that energy expended in that 
all of that energy is not just a destructive pattern personally and relationally. It also places me in bondage to what Jesus has freed me from. Confessing really should be a first offense rather than a last resort. See, you know what you struggle with. You know what you need help with. You know where your self-control is not. And you know where it is, and you're puffed up with pride about it, which is self-righteousness. My confession at times has had to be, you know, I am just a really prideful brother. But sin thrives in isolation, and it thrives in concealment. And as it does, when confession is the last resort, when we go to it because... You know, I didn't cover up my tracks like I usually do, and now I'm facing discovery. I've been, I've been hiding this, hiding it, hiding it, and this time I, I had a misstep, and now I'm about to be found out. And so I've, I've got I've to go cut off the consequences, you know, at the pass. I'll confess now. The degree of consequence severity corresponds usually to how much effort was expended in trying to cover up my sin rather than seeking a trusted confessor who will minister to me in the joy of our mutual salvation, not condemnation, and help me put things in place to train, to retrain my desires. I don't lose my desires. I retrain them to seek from my Savior what I'm seeking for myself in whatever sin. Look, we don't abide alone. I hope you've picked that up as we've gone through this text the last couple of weeks on into it today. There's only one vine, but the vine has numerous branches, and we're intertwined as branches tend to be on vineyard vines. That's a, that's a clothing company, but I meant it as, a, as a, the vineyard with the vines. I just, I thought of pink whales suddenly. In confession, I will tell another branch on the same vine that I'm intersected with, I will tell that branch what I am, even if they've never seen it in me. But I know it's there, and I know God sees it, and confession lets someone else see it. Why? Why let somebody else into my inner life like that? Why go to someone and say, here are my doubts and here are my fears? Here's what I feel shame over. Here's my anxiety and my stress. Here's my pride and my coveting and my, and my envy. Here's my secret stash of whatever. I need you to help me burn it. I need you to help me leave it. I need, to, I need you to help me not lie to myself anymore either in pride or in shame, one of the two directions we lie to ourselves. In pride, I lie to myself in this, eh, I'm not really the problem with the world, everybody else is the problem of the world. And in shame, it's like uh, the, the, the littlest trivial thing is now calls for, for heaven to be completely outraged with me. I need you to help me see that I need my Savior more than I need my sin. Because left to myself, I want my sin. I need the joy of my salvation. That's why we need others. I, I think the way confession works best as an ongoing practice, it's less like a floodgate 
where you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and there's all this buildup and, and then you just, the person just kind of feels like you vomited on them. <laughs> you know. And the floodgates open and all this just, just comes out on you. I think it, 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 it should work more like a lock and dam system. You know, uh, being from the Florence area, Wilson Dam, Wheeler Dam, TVA, you know, built up that area. And a lot of you go over to Pickwick and you've seen the dams there. And you know the lock and dam system, that boats move through that in an orderly way, through a lock and dam. They don't get stuck there. They don't get sunk there. In fact, what's going on is that the boats need to move from one water level to another. And so the boat goes into the lock and the lock fills or drains as, as necessary in service to the boat doing what? Moving on. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the center, you're the lock and dam system for me if I can trust you enough to confess to you because I know you love me. See, there's all this water behind me in this process and I don't need you to try to armchair psychoanalyze me there. I just need you to listen, and then I need you to fill the lock. I need you to lift me up in the gospel that we mutually believe so that I can move forward, out and away from this back there, whatever it is. Don't go back into that water. But then I also need you to help me get better, get higher, get nobler, get to what's better, higher. And nobler. Now, where do consequences come in on this? This may involve some painful consequences. Don't set ultimatums when you hear somebody's confession. Okay, now that you've told me, you must tell her. And if you don't tell her, I will tell her by tomorrow morning at 8 if you haven't tonight. I know that sounds helpful. But I tell you, it will be better for the person to do that themselves. Give them the opportunity. God is a patient God. And when somebody confesses to you, God's patience is still in effect and they have to work a process. They know when they confess a sin against another that they need to go to that other and they need to make it right and they need you to help them get there. But it's not going to be immediate. It's not going to be through your ultimatum. So don't do that to people. If you don't tell her, I'm going to go tell her, all you're doing is making it harder for that person to get to a place of health. Now, there might be something, and I don't have the time to go into all this, but I just have to say it in case people are thinking on these levels. There might be uh, the breaking of a law involved or the abuse uh, of a child or someone involved, and, and that's, you can't keep that to yourself. There are laws uh, that, that impact uh, information that we get, and et cetera, and so on, and you know that. Confession can involve complexities. But if it's a risk-reward dynamic for just, let's just say, for just pedestrian sins, the stuff that, that's just kind of the everyday stuff that we're working in, working in, attitudinal shift, wandering eye, uh, taking expense report liberties, that aren't, et cetera, and so on, whatever it is. And self-righteous sins, I'm, I'm a really prideful brother, I carry this anger around, 
you know, and you, and you confess that. Whatever it is, it's a, if it's a risk-reward dynamic, the reward is what I'm after here is getting the joy of my salvation back and recognizing it's going to be hard to hide sin so that it can keep going or I hide it because I'm so afraid of the consequences I can't trust God on the other side of those consequences so that what I'm after is getting the joy of my salvation back or maybe getting it for the first time in experience. Because what, what's happening in confession is I'm being driven like a nail into the love of God for me. Look at verse 9 again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is the second consideration of two, and it's briefer. Why we should do confession is abiding practice, seeking to obey the Lord from the heart. The love reason in addition to the joy reason. We're told by Jesus down in verse 12, love one another as I've loved you. See that at the end of verse 12? Love one another as I've loved you. And the way we do this in the context of hearing someone's confession and being trustworthy with it is that we're not after sinking them. To take a page out of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, having a confessor, that trusted person who sees what I am and loves me still, it's kind of like having a spiritual sponsor. We are all addicted to sin, every one of us in this room. We all need a sponsor, and ideally that sponsor will love me. Where this works best is the sponsor loves me enough not to let me be destructive to myself or to those who love me. And the sponsor is effective in this because he has no illusions that human beings ever get beyond temptation because the sponsor experiences temptation himself. Remember um, Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In my experience, the people who are spiritual, that is trustworthy, aren't self-righteous about it. They have seen the worst in themselves beside the best of, in Jesus, and yet he embraced them. And, and they are moved by that in, in the core of their being, and they want for another who desperately needs grace what they've experienced of the goodness of God in them. A good sponsor for someone in recovery is, is someone who sees the worst in that person, knows the worst of that person, knows their secrets, knows the ways they hide, but loves them still. And every one of us in Christian fellowship have to have this or we're, we're, we won't abide, really. That is to say, we won't obey the Lord from the heart. We'll obey out of image management or worse. The right confessor wants you to find in your Savior what you go seeking for yourself from some sin. That's why he doesn't want to sink your boat. He wants to lift you. He wants to bring you to a place where, where you're accessing the, the grace of God in a, in a new way. He or she wants us to know the love of our Savior. And because that's true to such a person, we can reveal what we are. Sinners in need of mercy and grace and self-control and accountability. Sure, all of it. But all of that is very different from condemnation. No one needs condemnation. We do need accountability. We need encouragement. We need the gospel. We need support. 
We need validation in Christ that we are owned by him, not sin. We need love. We get this from Jesus through his people. Don't miss that. We get this from Jesus through his people. Because Jesus says here in verse 12, you've got to give each other what I have given you. Doesn't he say that in verse 12? That you love one another as I have loved you? How the church came to ever be the place where we feel we have to fake it is a tragedy. And people will go for years in Christian fellowship, decades sometimes, hoping nobody ever really notices they don't have a root system with Jesus. They don't really evidence a love relationship with him. But see, if it's going to be apparent that I love him, I've got to love you. Jesus teaches us this here, but to love you, verse 12, love one another as I've loved you, requires the practice of honesty with God, honesty with ourselves, and honesty with each other, trusted others among each other. Oddly enough, and I say oddly enough because this is counterintuitive, the way to experience the joy of your salvation is to be driven like a nail to the love of God for us but the way to be driven deeper into the love of God for us is to put the real you before him. It's counterintuitive. He doesn't want the cleaned up version of yourself. That's who he redeemed. That tendency we have, most of us in this room are are struggling more with the self-righteous side. That desire to present ourselves to God is, you know, we shine up pretty well, Lord, don't we? Isn't it a good thing that we're on your team and that you are are using us and and have us uh, on your side? That's the you he redeemed, the self-righteous you as well as the the unrighteous you. And so the way to be driven deeper into the love of God for us is to put the real you before him. And the real you has some issues. I know it. You know it. We all know it. Why do we act like we don't? I'll close with this. Peter, just listen to it. Let this wash over you. Peter, who was sitting in this room, later writes a letter to the church, and this is what he says. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's 1 Peter 4, 8. Isn't that a marvelous verse? Especially when you think about that Peter was sitting there in the room when John 15 was spoken, and then later on he writes this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Where'd you get that, Peter? I think I got it from, this is my commandment, you love one another as I've loved you. Keep loving one another earnestly, Peter says. Since, and that, I, he didn't have to put this on the, on the end of it. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Covers is a fascinating word when we think about confession. Because there's two ways to cover something, right? There's a way of, of covering up which is the stuff of political intrigue and conspiracy theories and what all the talking heads are yammering about all the time. That's covering up. But there's a covering over, and the covering over conveys protection and security. To confess is an, as an abiding practice is to refuse the cover-up, but not the covering over. Because if I confess to you, what I'm seeking from you is a kind of covering that you will love me as Jesus loves me and Jesus loves me by saying I don't condemn you but go and sin no more there's both that's what we want we want both to hear I don't condemn you 
but also to hear, go and sin no more. What has to be put in place now for me to move on past this, out of this, away from this? We can't do this alone. None of us can. We have to have Jesus for us in this, and we do. I think the best thing that I can say to you this Sunday and any Sunday that I stand here is that Jesus is for you. He is for you who are tired of your sin and came on in here because you are, and he is for you who aren't tired of your sin and you came on in here anyway too. He's for both. Jesus is for us relentlessly. The vine wants its branches. What happens if the vine has no branches? It's a pretty funny looking vine. The vine wants his branches to bear fruit for him that lasts. He's with us in this. Confession is a good practice for us in the interest of bearing fruit for him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us. Thank you for opening the way to us. Thank you for pruning us when we're fruitful so that we be more so. And thank you for trellising us where we're not fruitful giving us the opportunity because you're patient and good and kind with us. Lord, we thank you that uh, the judgment that we merit was taken by Christ in full and so that your orientation toward us, your way with us is gentle and filled with grace and kindness. Thank you for being this way with your people. And as we go out from this place today, that we would, we would radiate this. The psalm says those who look to you, their faces are radiant. And people would notice. And conversations would be born. And the vine grows a new branch of people who are, are realizing that there is a hope in this world that transcends the day-to-day. And there's a foundation that we can build on. And there's a, there's a sap and a nourishment we can get from above that's real and genuine. Real love, we're thankful for it and that we find it. And real joy in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.